All right. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is August 17th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be on the August Revolution in 1945 in Vietnam, something that we decided to have this month since it's August. Um, we haven't talked about Vietnam a whole lot, so this class opens up some discussion on that. With that, is there anything that you want to say before we get started? Good evening, comrades. Yes. So we're going to talk about what happened on August 15th, 1945. Now, that date is uh, important and it's interesting because on that day began the Vietnamese insurrection, okay? mostly in northern Vietnam. And also, it is a day that Japan surrendered, not officially, but it was proclaimed on the radio by the Japanese emperor. And also, it was a day when the Soviet Red Army entered what is all of North Korea now. Okay, so that's that's all. All right, thank you, comrades. Just to get started, though, classes on the August Revolution in Vietnam. What we're going to be learning today is a little bit of background on Ho Chi Minh's studies in France and his involvement uh, with the Communist Party and in other areas uh, before the August Revolution. Uh, the national liberation of Vietnam from Japan and France, both with the August Revolution uh, and the battles that they fought against France in the First Indochina War following that. And another uh, thing that we'll be learning about today is a little bit about uh, the Socialist Revolution and some of the events leading to the Vietnam War. But it's mostly going to be about the period before that. We will have a class at some point on uh, the Vietnam War period, but today it's mostly the Vietnamese struggle before that time. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk here first about uh, French colonialism and Ho Chi Minh. So French Indochina, first I want to talk, uh, I want to say that in general, French Indochina is meant by what is today Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, okay? It all began in the 17th century with the establishment of Catholic missions in Asia by the Society of Foreign Missions of Paris. 200 years later, in the middle of the 19th century, under the rule of Napoleon III, the actual military conquest of Indochina started under the pretext of persecution of missionaries by the Nguyen dynasty. Of course, the true reason was to provide French capitalism with the abundant natural resources of Southeast Asia. The conquest proceeded from the south to the north. Cochin, China in the south, Annam in the middle, and Tonkin in the north in the order. By 1887, French Indochina was formed, including the Kingdom of Cambodia, and a few years later, the Kingdom of Laos, the early years of Ho Chi Minh. So Ho Chi Minh was born in central Vietnam, Annam, in the year 1890. He found work as a cook on a French merchant ship in 1911. Until 1917, he visited several countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom. But his political journey began in France when he met Marcel Cachin 
a future leader of the French Communist Party. In December 1920, Ho Chi Minh was a delegate of the Socialist Party of France at the Tour Congress, where decision had to be made about joining the Third International, the Comintern. Together with Kashan, Ho Chi Minh was a firm defender of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. And the Congress voted by a majority vote to join the Comintern. The French Communist Party, PCF, was born. And Ho Chi Minh had been one of its founding members. Ho Chi Minh and the Comintern. Ho Chi Minh's work within the PCF caught the attention of Manuelski. Manuelski was uh, second in command of the Comintern right, right after Dimitrov, especially after Dimitrov was released from the Nazi prisons. So Manuelski took him under his wing and assigned him important missions in the Comintern. Ho Chi Minh was a delegate at the fifth Congress of the Comintern in 1924 after Lenin's death. Right after, the Comintern sent him to China to organize Vietnamese exiles there, and he created the Vietnamese Revolutionary Youth League in the North. The North is a Tonkin. He stayed until 1927, when Chiang Kai-shek began his murderous campaign against Chinese communists. Ho Chi Minh became a senior figure of the Comintern for Southeast Asia and founded the Indo-Chinese Communist Party in 1930. Ho Chi during World War II. In 1937, Japan invaded China on a full scale. Uh, keep in mind, comrades, that Japan actually invaded Manchuria, the northeastern part of uh, China in 1931. And the Chinese Red Armies allied with the Kuomintang to fight Japanese imperialism in accordance with the Comintern line of United Front. Ho Chi Minh became an advisor to the Chinese Red Armies, together with two historical figures of the Vietnamese Revolution, Giap, the winner of Dien Bien Phu, and Phan Van Dong, he was prime minister before, um, before Ho Chi Minh died in 69. In 1940, the fall of 1940, I'm sorry. In 1940, Japan invaded French Indochina. And even though they led Vichy France, colonialism keep control of the Vietnam administration. Vichy France is a regime uh, the lab dogs of Hitler that was installed in France after the fall of Paris in June 1940. That is when Ho Chi Minh founded the Viet Minh, a patriotic united front organization led by the Indochinese Communist Party. The Viet Minh's goal was to liberate Vietnam from both Japanese imperialism and French colonialism and to proclaim independence. While at war with Japan, the US supported the Viet Minh, providing intelligence and arms. 
through the OSS, the uh, precursor of the CIA. The Viet Minh formed a guerrilla force 10,000 strong, the so-called Men in Black. It led successful operations against both Japanese and Vichy French Hitler's lapdogs. It must be noted that Ho Chi Minh was once arrested in 1943 by Chiang Kai-shek men who hated communists more than they hated Japanese. Uh, they used to say, Japan is a disease of the skin, but communism is a disease of the soul. That's what uh, Chiang Kai-shek used to say. He was quickly released by members of the Chinese Red Army. In August 1944, following the Normandy Allied landings, Paris was liberated and Vichy France fell. That spelled trouble for Japan in Indochina in the middle of the American advance in the Pacific. In March 1945, the Japanese army quickly moved in to expel all French administration in Vietnam. Japan had no interest in establishing a government in Vietnam as they were more worried about fighting the Americans, obviously. So they relied on Emperor Bao Dai of the Gien dynasty to set up an administration friendly and subordinate to Japan, basically a fake independence. The abdication and the declaration of independence. To Ho Chi Minh, that was a perfect storm, an opportunity for the Vietnamese revolution. One and me down, one more to go. The Viet Minh took control of the countryside, preparing for battle and for the final insurrection. On August 9th, 1945, the Soviet Red Army entered the war against Japan, invaded Manchuria, and quickly vanquished the Kwantung Army, Japan's very best army. That forced the surrender of Japan on August 15th, 1945. This was a signal Ho Chi Minh had, be, had been waiting for. That same day, the Viet Minh launched a full-scale insurrection and took power like you take a baby's milk. Hanoi was liberated in just four days. Emperor Bao Dai abdicated, the Viet Minh declared independence, and Ho Chi Minh proclaimed the Democratic Republic of Vietnam in Hanoi on September 2nd, 1945. The prelude to the first Indochina war. By the way, the first Indochina war in Vietnam is called the French war. The second Indochina war is called the American war. That's in Vietnam. On the same day, that was September 2nd, 1945, the official surrendering of Japan was signed by the emperor of Japan, before MacArthur aboard the USSS Missouri. Three days later, the first Allied forces led by British commander landed in Saigon, that's in Cochin, China, with a mission of restoring order and handing power back to France. The Viet Minh had full control of the North, but in the South, in the Cochin, China, it was weaker. Lots of Vietnamese Catholic fled to the South. By September 23rd, the French military backed by the British had regained full control of Saigon. 
the Viet Minh had been expelled from the city. But throughout the South, clashes developed against French and British forces. It was a prelude to an, an eight-year war with France that would end with the Viet Minh stunning victory at Dien Bien Phu in May 1944, uh, 1954, sorry, under the command of the unforgettable General Jap. All right, and we're gonna watch a video about the Vietnamese proclamation of independence by Ho Chi Minh. And as you uh, listen to this, think about the similarities to what we listened to when we heard the Declaration of American Independence. Tất cả mọi người đều sinh ra có quyền bình đẳng, tạo hóa cho họ những quyền không ai có thể xâm phạm được. Trong những quyền ấy có quyền được sống, quyền tự do và quyền mưu cầu hạnh phúc. Lời bất hủ ấy ở trong bản tuyên ngôn độc lập năm 1776 của nước Mỹ, suy luận ra câu ấy có ý nghĩa là Tất cả các dân tộc trên thế giới đều sinh ra bình đẳng. Dân tộc nào cũng có quyền sống, quyền sung sướng và quyền tự do. Bản viên ngôn nhân quyền và dân quyền của cách mạng Pháp năm 1791 cũng nói Người ta sinh ra tự do và bình đẳng vì quyền lợi và phải luôn luôn được tự do và bình đẳng vì quyền lợi. Đó là những lời phải không ai chối cãi được. Thế mà hơn 80 năm nay, bọn thực dân Pháp lợi dụng lá cờ tự do bình đẳng bác ái đến cướp đất nước ta, áp bức đồng bào ta, hành động của chúng cái hành của nhân đạo và chính nghĩa. Vì chính trị, chính tuyệt đối không cho nhân dân ta một chút tự do dân chủ nào chúng thi hành những luật pháp giả mang chúng lập ba chế độ khác nhau ở trung nam bắc để ngăn cản việc thống nhất nước nhà của ta để ngăn cản dân tộc ta đoàn kết chúng lập ra nhà tù nhiều hơn cửa học chúng thẳng tay chém giết người yêu nước thương nổi của ta chúng tắm các cuộc thử nghĩa của ta trong những bề máu chúng ràng buộc dư luận thi hành chính sách nhân dân chúng dùng thuốc hiên rượu cồn để làm cho nổi dân ta suy nhược vì kinh tế chúng bóc lột dân ta đến xuyên tủy khiến cho dân ta nghèo nàn thiếu thốn nước ta chưa chắc tiêu biểu chúng cướp không ruộng đất hầm mỏ nguyên liệu chúng dị độc quyền in dây bạc xuất cảng và nhập cảng chúng đặt ra hàng trăm thứ thuế vô lý làm cho dân ta nhất là dân cày và dân buôn trở nên bần cục chúng không cho các nhà tư sản ta ngóc đầu lên chúng bóc lột công nhân ta một cách vô cùng tàn nhẫn. Mùa thu năm 1940, Phật Thích Nhật đến Trâm Lăng, Đông Dương để mở thêm căn cứ đánh Đồng Minh. 
thì bọn thực dân pháp quỳ gối đầu hàng mở cửa nước ta rút nhật từ đó dân ta chịu hai tầng kiểm thích pháp và nhật từ đó dân ta cần cực khổ nghèo nàn kết quả là cuối năm ngoái sang đầu năm nay từ quảng trị đến bắc kỳ hơn hai triệu đồng bào ta bị chết đói ngày chín tháng ba năm nay nhật trước khí giới của quân đội pháp bọn thực dân pháp hoặc là bò chay hoặc là đầu hàng thế là chẳng những chúng không bảo hộ được ta trái lại trong năm năm chúng đã bán nước ta hai lần cho nhật trước ngày mùng chín tháng ba biết bao lần việt minh đã kêu gọi người pháp liên minh để chống nhật bọn thực dân pháp đã không đáp ứng lại thẳng tay khủng bố việt minh hơn nữa thậm chí đến khi thua chạy chúng còn nhận tâm giết nốt số đông tù chính trị ở yên bái và cao bằng tuy vậy đối với người pháp đồng bào ta gần như một thái độ khoan hồng và nhân đạo sau cuộc biến động ngày chín tháng ba việt minh đã giúp cho nhiều người pháp chạy qua biên thủy lại cứu cho nhiều người pháp ra khỏi nhà giam nhật và bảo vệ tính mạng và tài sản cho họ sự thật là từ mùa thu năm một nghìn chín trăm bốn mươi nước ta đã thành thuộc địa của nhật chứ không phải thuộc địa của pháp nữa khi nhật hoàng bình minh thì nhân dân cả nước ta đã nổi dậy giành chính quyền lập nên nước việt nam dân chủ cộng hòa sự thật là nhân ta đã lấy lại nước việt nam từ tay nhật chứ không phải từ tay pháp pháp chạy nhật hàng đưa bảo đại thoái đi dân ta đã đánh đổ các truyền thích thực dân gần một trăm năm nay để gây dựng nên nước việt nam độc lập dân ta lại đánh đổ chế độ quân chủ mấy mươi thế kỷ mà lập nên chế độ dân chủ cộng hòa bởi thế cho nên chúng tôi nhân thời chính phủ của nước việt nam mới đại biểu cho toàn dân việt nam tuyên bố phát ly hẳn quan hệ với pháp xóa bỏ hết những hiệp ước mà pháp đã ký về nước việt nam xóa bỏ tất cả mọi đặc quyền của pháp trên đất nước việt nam toàn dân việt nam tuyên bố một lòng kiên quyết chống lại âm mưu của bọn thực dân pháp chúng tôi tin rằng các nước đồng minh đã công nhận những nguyên tắc dân tộc bình đẳng ở các hội nghị tây hy lan và cựu kim sơn quyết không thể không công nhận quyền độc lập của dân việt nam một dân tộc đã gian nhất chống hết nô lệ của pháp hơn tám mươi năm nay một dân tộc đã gian nhất đứng vì xe đồng minh chống phát xít mấy năm nay dân tộc đó phải được tự do dân tộc đó phải được độc lập vì những lời tên chúng tôi chính phủ lâm thời của nước việt nam dân chủ cộng hòa trung tăng tuyên bố với thế giới rằng 
nước Việt Nam có quyền hưởng tự do và độc lập và sự thật đã thành một nước tự do độc lập. Toàn thể dân tộc Việt Nam quyết đem tất cả tinh thần và lực lượng, tính mạng và của cải để giữ vững quyền tự do độc lập ấy. Right, and then we have one last quote by Ho Chi Minh. Step by step, along the struggle, by studying Marxism-Leninism, parallel with participation in practical activities, I gradually came upon the fact that only socialism and communism can liberate the oppressed nations and the working people throughout the world from slavery, by Ho Chi Minh. Right, and with that, we'll start our first round of questions and comments. Yeah, I just want to say um, during this period uh, when Kamar talked about um, the U.S. working with Ho Chi Minh, this was a period where American communists had a seat at the table. Um, Milton Wolf, who was one of the leaders of the International Brigades, he went on to be in OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA, and he actually helped work with Italian partisans in Italy. So this is when we had communists within, you know, the McCarthyites in a sense were right. There were a lot of communists in the government as part of, uh, we were the left flank of the FDR coalition in many ways. Um, and it, it's just really sad the way our, it could have been so different if Henry Wallace stayed on as vice president and the Democrats didn't rig it through Truman. Um, it's sad after listening to that video, you know, we used to inspire people. Even our bourgeois revolution used to inspire people. It inspired Ho Chi Minh. It inspired Sun Yat-sen in China. It inspired Lenin to a certain extent. It inspired a lot of people around the world. And we have taken up the place of what our great-grandfathers, great-great-great-grandfathers revolted against. We have taken the role of the British Empire in the world today. And it's a tragedy. And what's even more disgusting about what happened when the, when the Japanese surrendered, when the Japanese surrendered, in Vietnam, instead of um, imprisoning the Japanese, the British gave the Japanese their weapons back after they surrendered and told them to help hold down Vietnam for the French until the French could arrive in force. This was because France basically underwent kind of a civil war during World War II between the Laval regime and the Vichy traitors and the free French forces of Charles de Gaulle, who organized kind of a popular front along with the French Communist Party and it was complicated, but um, basically we went from being, we turned against our ally, Ho Chi Minh. We went along with the British post-World War II. As a result of this, we ended up in a war in Indochina 10 years later down the road in the early 60s. And, you know, about around 60,000 Americans died. So, and that's the tragedy. We killed our, our allies and our allies killed our own soldiers. So that's the result of the Cold War, and that's a consequence that's going to haunt America for a long time, unfortunately. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to just clarify a couple of things. Um, when Hitler invaded France, he did what he did in many countries. He gave certain areas a puppet status. He did that in Croatia. He did that in Ukraine. So it was the first time the Croatians and Ukraine had so-called independence under fascist rule. And that's where the whole problem with the Ukraine started with then. The flag you see of the Ukraine now 
No one mentions it. That flag was born in Nazi, uh, the Nazi state of the Ukraine. That's if you go back in the historical archives, you'll see the trident on that flag. That was not the flag of the Ukraine for all about 80 years. It was the flag of the Soviet Socialist Republic of the Ukraine from 1917 to 1991. That's number one. Number two, they did that in France and they set up a state in a city. And if I'm incorrect, comrade who comes from France could correct me, but the city was called Vichy. And therefore that's why it was called Vichy France. So the Germans controlled Paris and the northern part, and they gave the area, the southern part around Marseille, near the water, they gave that to this puppet government, Vichy France, who had as their president, um, uh, Pétain. Pétain was a, war, a hero, <clears throat> a French hero from World War I, when France was in World War I. So he was looked at by many people as a hero. And he led Vichy France. Uh, I got a lot of this knowledge from an American movie in the 19, I don't know, I think it was the 40s, called Casablanca. You got to look at the movie Casablanca. Henry, uh, I think Bogart, uh, I forgot his first name, but Bogart. Humphrey. Uh, what? Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey, I knew it was an A, right. Uh, and you should watch that movie. By the way, Bogart and his wife or his girlfriend were active against the House Un-American Activities Committee. They marched in many demonstrations of Hollywood actors against the, the House Un-American Activities Committee and the McCarthy period that attacked Hollywood. Uh, so Humphrey Bogart was also an anti-fascist, very, very important, interesting figure. Um, but in this movie, Casablanca, it shows the, the, the French that were under the Vichy government. They were working with the Nazis. And it is one scene of that movie where uh, it's very touching, where uh, the Germans are singing a German song and the French people that are there start singing La Marseille, the French national anthem. I don't know. You must have seen this from... Uh, this movie and yeah, uh, many times, comrade. okay <laughs> so it's a very touching scene um i remember when i first saw it i started singing the marseille myself and um very revolutionary song anyway the point i'm making is that that's vichy france it was uh the group that was allowed to to run indochina and also, I think in southern northern northern Africa, French colonies there, but they were the same as the Germans, just the way the um, the Nazi uh, Ukrainians and Croatians were the same as the Germans. And in many cases, I was told by uh, survivors of the concentration camp that the Ukrainian fascists and the Croatian fascists were worse than the Germans. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. Um, again, I thought it was interesting that he like immediately starts appealing to the American Revolution. And um, surprisingly, like we learned a little bit about this in high school. 
I don't think that's normal. Um, I guess I just had a cool teacher. But like weirdly, we learned that Ho Chi Minh like um, tried to ally with America. I think like try to ask us for support against the French, basically. It must have been in the period like right after World War II. But anyway, like they taught us that America like essentially waved off Ho Chi Minh, like what a ridiculous idea. And like, you know, to us at the time, like I didn't know anything about communism or whatever. So it was like, wait a second, like this is a colony fighting against colonizers. Like this, this isn't supposed to happen. Why didn't America support them? So weirdly, like public school gave me my first like anti-American, this is all BS idea from, you know, the um, Vietnam War. So, yeah. Thank you, comrade. And I'll just expand on that and say when I was in uh, high school, they kind of taught us a little bit about, you know, Ho Chi Minh going to, I think, five or six American presidents with the petition for Vietnamese independence, starting with Woodrow Wilson, to kind of give us some background context. But then, like, when they got up to the Vietnam War, they just made all the excuses that, oh, but they were communists. And so, you know, the domino theory, if, if Vietnam becomes communist, then Laos will, and then Thailand, India, all the way back to the United States. As if it happens like that. Um, but they were scared about communism. And so they wanted to, you know, kind of give us a little bit of a nuanced view of Vietnam without breaking from their Cold War ideology. Hello, comrades. So I've seen uh, Casablanca. I recommend everyone watch it. I actually watched it in Spanish as well. And Humphrey Bogart's voice in Spanish is really hilarious. He says, uh, I won't even talk about it. But uh, another comrade mentioned something too. He said that was my first taste of anti-Americanism. Well, perhaps comrades, by the learnings of Lenin, especially Stalin, and against the backdrop of fascism, Stalin taught us to be the patriots of our country. Patriotism is different than nationalism. They're two separate things. And on the issue of Ho Chi Minh, we can say that Ho Chi Minh is one of the greats like Lenin, like Stalin, like William Z. Foster. And Ho Chi Minh comes from that time of the Bolsheviks. He was a founding member of the party in France. He worked in the Comintern. He worked with Dimitrov and Stalin. And what did Ho Chi Minh do? <laughs> He led the successful national liberation of his country. Six seconds. So comrades like Ho Chi Minh are those that we need to uphold. And the movement, the so-called communist movement of today, to put it in a word that young people can understand, is a NATO psyop. And so we need to defend Ho Chi Minh and carry his legacy and continue his legacy. Great. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. Um... First off, I want to say this is a great class. Um, I want to thank everyone who did it. Um, but the one thing that I want to touch on is I want to draw a parallel from then to now. You know, we look at the Viet Minh and we look at who they allied themselves with. You know, they had to get popular support in their country or else they were not going to win. That meant that they worked with Buddhists. They worked with Catholics. They worked with everyone. And I see that it's so crazy, just like how it just said. Anything to the right of us, we cannot work with. Anything to the left of us, we cannot work with. And this is a this creates like a self-fulfilling prophecy that everyone is against us. You know, these people upheld the United Front and they won their revolution. 
and we're still bickering about is this right or is this wrong or you know yada 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 so it's something to take away from it and we look at the history of successful socialist revolutions and they had to ally with everyone the french uh the free french forces allied with french catholics and one last thing i want to say on that is i would recommend everyone watch yeah. the ken burns sorry okay. Uh, yes. Uh, what I wanted to, what was the reason that the uh, Indochina uh, Communist Party ultimately broke up? Uh, because I, I I know partition had a lot to do with the with the uh, breakup of the Indochina Communist Party, but how come uh, it, it uh, did not stay as a partition? Great, comrade. Do you have a response for that? Um, okay. Um, was the question why the Indo-Chinese Communist Party uh, dissolved, right? Yeah. Well, just first because you know Indochina, so it's you know three countries actually, right? Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. You know, so I suppose that Ho Chi Minh wanted to just have a, uh, a Vietnamese Communist Party, which he did, right? I suppose that's why. All right, uh, comrade, it looks like you had an answer as well. Yeah, so comrades, one of the things we've studied with the League of Young Communists when it has its own studies is uh, was actually from Kim Il-sung. Very similar situation happened in Korea. There was actually a communist party of Korea and Kim Il-sung was involved with anti-imperialism and there was uh, a thing called like the anti-imperialist United Front or something like that. But the Korean Communist Party, I'm using Korea for, as an example for Vietnam, the Korean Communist Party, just like today, how in our country there's different communist groups, guess what? Back then there were different communist groups in every single country. And they were all, well, not all of them, but most of them were fighting for the, the attention of the Comintern. And in Korea, for example, you had different groups, different factions within the Korean Communist Party, you had other groups with different names. And uh, the Korean Party, the Communist Party itself did some kind of... Uh, uprising thing kim il-sung mentions this against the japanese which was like a a fake thing just to kind of draw attention to themselves very opportunist thing and the communist party of korea was actually disqualified and kicked out of the Comintern for what they did and so talk about indochina obviously a lot was going on in that area i think we mentioned Vichy france for example uh, the whole area of indochina kept changing if that makes sense who was controlling it different borders uh, and so, at least in the case of Korea, just between intrigue between the communists themselves got themselves disqualified from the Comintern. So I guess I'm not giving a specific example for Vietnam, but basically one can assume between the two things, one intrigue and fighting, infighting between the communist forces themselves, and then two, the outside forces changing themselves as well, as we mentioned, Vichy France. So it's probably somewhere in between those two. Uh, one of the factions within the Indochina Communist Party, which was Ho Chi Minh and General Gap and the others, uh, they kept what they were doing. And as we know today, we're in contact with parties in those countries. Uh, the party in Burma, for example, uh, it's still around, but uh, you never hear of them. Yeah. And again, um, in, in terms of like what, uh, going back to what uh, Ho Chi Minh said in that declaration, who sounds more like, you know, someone who, who's, who's upholding the spirit of 1776? Harry Truman 
who said we should ally with Nazi Germany and fund uh, if the Russians are winning and ally with the Russians if the Germans are winning, or Ho Chi Minh, who's actually advocating for national independence and liberation for his specific homeland. Um, it's just kind of shocking to me, uh, basically how, how like even our constitution, um, our basic bourgeois democratic civil liberties have just been thrown overboard um, by both the Democrats and the Republicans through the Patriot Act and through everything that's happened in the past couple of years and how, um, and, and again, I encourage all the comrades on this call um, to listen to Stalin's last speech um, before, I'm, I'm not sure which party Congress it was, but it was before a con Congress in the 1950s where he talks that the bourgeoisie has abandoned bourgeois liberalism. They've abandoned all, that, all semblance of bourgeois democracy. Um, so it is communist responsibility to defend bourgeois democratic rights and to defend the patriotism of our various country, to be the true patriots against the capitalists who are destroying all nations around the world, all countries around the world. Um, and I encourage every, it's on YouTube. Um, it's subtitled in English. Just look up Stalin final speech. It's very, very good. Great. Thank you, comrade. What was the West's opinion of the proclamation that quoted the French uh, Declaration of Independence and the American one? Did we think it was a good progress in the U.S. and British media in French? You know, at first, uh, the French government, now keep in mind the French government in 1945, in September 1945, had communists in as ministers. Okay, including Maurice Torres, you know, the leader of the PCF. So, of course, they were friendly to Ho Chi Minh. Obviously, <laughs> they were comrades, you know, from the old days. So um, they were not opposed or anything, but some others in the government were, for sure. So later on, it all came to a head, you know, in 1946. But at first, for like a year, Ho Chi Minh and, and the French government negotiated and the communists in the French government pushed for friendship with, uh, with Vietnam where it would be an independence and yet France would keep having uh, people there you know, to educate, to help with uh, science and, and things like that. And Ho Chi Minh, that's what he wanted as well. Uh, but no, uh, in 46, he went to the full war, okay? In the United States, I believe that at first, uh, the US government wasn't so much against Ho Chi Minh but quickly it turned on, on them. All right, thank you, comrade. Uh, oh yeah, I was curious if anyone um, knew about uh, Ho Chi Minh's time outside of Vietnam. Uh, I know it, for some time he was in China. I was curious about uh, if anyone knew about like the work he did uh, aiding the communist movement in China. Yeah, um, like, I, like it said, you know, in the presentation a little earlier, at one time, he was an advisor to the Chinese Red Army, you know, from the Comintern. So the Comintern sent him to, uh, to uh, northern uh, Vietnam, Tonkin and China next to each other, right? And um, he, did, he did help, you know, the, the Chinese Red Communists, you know, Mao Zedong campaign, especially after uh, 1927, right? Yes. So when, when the conflict began between the, uh, between the Communist Party and the Kuomintang. 
I have a few facts about uh, Ho Chi Minh in terms of like there was some time at first he tried working while he was working for a as a chef. At one point, though, he it was like after World War One that he thought that he was going to try to talk to Woodrow Wilson about French repressions in Nam. And then that's when that when he was rebuffed by that, that's when he started to go towards uh, Marxism and Leninism. And then he got an invitation to the Comintern in Moscow. And then after that, some of his whereabouts for a good couple years before World War II was unknown, even was reported dead. But that was not by accident. He didn't want to be found. So during that time, he was probably, it's said that he had been going undercover and going from place to place. Uh, the other reason that the American view towards proclaiming independence in Vietnam changed dramatically negatively is because of the rise of communist china that was one of the reasons why all of a sudden it switched because if there was kuomintang china in between the soviet union and communist vietnam that was a, would have been a buffer had they succeeded i want to add to this uh comrade uh what you mentioned the letter you said you said about uh was a letter that ho chi minh wrote to the versailles conference of 1919, right after World War I was finished, you know, and there was this conference. And yes, he did write a letter and he was read by all these people, Churchill, Roosevelt, uh, not Roosevelt, uh, Wilson, sorry, and uh, all of them, and, he, uh, and they ignored it completely. That was uh, before he joined the Communist Party, okay? Before he founded the Communist Party, I mean, okay? And um, also, uh, when you mentioned about uh, what happened after 1949, you know, when Mao Zedong took power. Okay, very interesting because at the time uh, in early 50 or by June or so, when the war started with Korea, Mao Zedong famously said, the three daggers pointed at us, at the north, Korea. I mean, at the head, Korea. At the belly, Taiwan. At the feet, Vietnam. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. And then I also have another question um, about sort of the relationship between China and Vietnam at this period. So I know that later on, when it gets into the late 70s, it gets a little bit ugly between Vietnam and China. But it seems like during this period, uh, in the late 1940s and 1950s, they're on friendly terms. So could you just give a little bit of expanding on what it was like, the relationship between the Vietnamese and Chinese communists during this period? Uh, one thing I want to mention is, uh, you know, before, for, for many centuries, the Chinese warlords, they would go in a Tonkin in North Vietnam, you know, and, and, and run hell there. So there was always a problem there, you know. Okay. Um, now, the Chiangai Chek Kuomintang with Ho Chi Minh um, after the defeat of Japan, because it was still allied with, with, uh, the, uh, with Mao Zedong, okay, at the time. Um, but after the defeat of Japan, they were kind of friendly with, with Ho Chi Minh government, with the Viet Minh. Uh, they, they had no problem at all, okay? It's for sure once the civil war started uh, between uh, the Kuomintang and, and the Red Army, the Red Chinese Army, the, the final civil war, that's when 
definitely uh, the Viet Minh, Ho Chi Minh, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek became mortal enemies. Okay, that's what I know. All right, thank you. Yeah, uh, I was also going to add that you know while the relations between China and Vietnam did sour, which was a result of the Sino-Soviet split because the Vietnamese went with the Soviets. Um, but prior to that, the Chinese, the People's Republic of China and Vietnam, especially the communists had very good relations, Northern Vietnam. Um, the Chinese armies would send volunteers to Vietnam, not to do combat, but they would run logistics. Um, they would build roads. They would be responsible for sending supplies. So a lot of the rifles in the Vietnamese army was actually provided by China or even Soviet shipped to China and then the Chinese would transport it to Vietnam. So this was a time of solidarity between the Soviet Union, China and Vietnam. And you know, together they managed to defeat the, the United States and the French. Um, but I actually have a question which was uh, how did the French respond to Vietnam's declaration of independence in, you know, in Indochina? What was their response or what was the public perception of it prior to, you know, prior to US involvement? Well, uh, like I said earlier, I think um, it was kind of mixed. Basically, uh, example, the, the, the French Communist Party was in the government in 1945 until, until late 46, 47, just when the actual war began. So for one year, um, the French communist in the French government were of course friendly to Ho Chi Minh and did the best they could to negotiate, you know, between France and Ho Chi Minh. And uh, what uh, Ho Chi Minh wanted was uh, to keep relationship, you know, no war, no nothing, independence, but keep relationship, have teachers, scientists, you name it, engineers there, you know and help. That's what he wanted. And the co French communists, of course, wanted that. But you had the socialists in the government and the rightists. And of course, you know, they were for the colony colonialism, so they could not accept it. So starting 46, that's it, total war. And then the communists were expelled from the government, not long after. So we'll go ahead and go to the second part of this presentation. Okay, so National Liberation, August Revolution, Independence Movement. The League for the Independence of Vietnam, established by Ho Chi Minh in May 1941, the Viet Minh, or League for the Independence of Vietnam, was a united front dedicated to the struggle for the independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam from Japanese and French forces. The Viet Minh fought the Japanese invaders during World War II. In addition to the French collaborators present, they had over 500,000 people in membership with over 100,000 in different regions of Indochina. Next slide. Uh, battles and uprisings. On August 16th, the National People's Congress was established for the first time, and the leadership expressed that, that an armed takeover of Vietnam needed to be rapidly accomplished. By August 19th, the Viet Minh took most of North Vietnam, including Hanoi. On August 23rd, 
the Viet Minh led an uprising in Hue, the capital of Vietnam. A day earlier in Saigon, Japanese Field Marshal Count Hisaichi Terauchi transferred power to the Viet Minh and handed them a wakizashi sword as a symbolic gesture. On October 25th, Emperor Bao Dai, the ruler of the Japanese puppet state of the Empire of Vietnam, abdicated to the communists. This brought an end to the Empire of Vietnam. All right, we'll watch a brief video of the August Revolution mapped. August Revolution, Independence and Land Reform. On September 2nd, 1945, Ho Chi Minh stood before a crowd in Hanoi and proclaimed Vietnam's independence. This momentous declaration resonated with Marxist-Leninist principles of self-determination and anti-imperialism, solidifying the foundation for the August Revolution. Following the Declaration of Independence, revolutionary committees were established across the country. These co committees embodied the principles of proletarian power, working to implement land reforms that redistributed wealth and ended feudal exploitation. Democratic Republic of Vietnam. On September 2nd, 1945, Ho Chi Minh also announced the establishment of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. This marked the beginning of a new era, reflecting the successful application of Marxist-Leninist principles in reshaping the socio-political landscape. The August Revolution saw the effective leadership of the CP of Vietnam, which leveraged its understanding of Marxism-Leninism to unite peasants and workers in a common struggle. Together, they rose against both imperialist forces and domestic feudal landlords. Significance of the August Revolution and Challenges the August Revolution reflected the internationalist outlook of Marxism-Leninism. It resonated with the global struggle against imperialism, inspiring other anti-colonial movements and showcasing the unity of oppressed nations against common enemies. The August Revolution faced internal and external challenges, including divisions within the revolutionary leadership, 
and the threat of returning colonial powers. The CPV's adept application of dialectical analysis, a Marxist method, allowed them to navigate these complexities. All right, we'll stop for our second round of questions and comments, as well as the new members' introductions. Uh, so, Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Uh, they mentioned uh, like uh, them take uh, the Vietnamese taking over uh, North uh, Vietnam first. Was uh, were they stronger in the north than in the south? Yes, I believe so. Around uh, the North Vietnam, around Hanoi, I forget which rivers around there too. The um, Red River. Yeah, the Red River. Uh, funny enough, was actually where they were really strong, and in the south, it was a little bit uh, harder for them. Now, can I expand on that? Yeah, historically, it was always the North that was very much uh, uh, on, on the side of the Viet Minh, you know, which is understandable since it was close to China, right? Keep in mm -hmm. mind, Gen, Gen Fu is in the North, in the Tonkin, very close to China, okay? In the South, in Cochin, uh, China, much more conservative, lots of Catholic and this and that, you know, so Viet Minh was 100% from the North, Tonkin. All right, thank you, comrade. Comrade, I had uh, I found out something about the Indo-Chinese Communist Party. Here, yeah, the floor. Okay, you know, Ho Chi Minh dissolved the Indo-Chinese Communist Party in November '45. Okay, and the reason was to make it more like of a united front and all that, you know, for the Viet Minh to take control, right? Okay, but they reinstated the party in 1951, but then. They split in three, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. And that's when the actual Communist Party of Vietnam was founded, if you will, refounded. All right, thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to comment, as usual, when a, a declaration occurs after that, just like with the Soviet Union, that's when the work starts. As soon as Ho Chi Minh declared the independence of uh, Vietnam, uh, then he, as is stated in the program here, that's when all the complex and uh, dealing with all of the other uh, issues comes to roost. And, and that happened, of course, we had the civil war with um, uh, Russia, uh, you know, to, cre to create the Soviet Union. And I think it was like about a four or five year civil war. And I'm sure Vietnam has that same thing. And I just think it's like a cautionary tale. Declaring something doesn't, that's when the work begins. It doesn't end the work. That's when the real work begins to solidify it. Yeah. Yeah. So just want to let you know, because I was thinking also of what uh, Niger is trying to do too. Declaring is easy and then the hard work comes. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, that's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later in the presentation, um, but not only the Viet Minh, which became eventually became the Army of North Vietnam, um, but the NLF, the National Liberation Front, which was that's where the famous red and blue flag that all the that a lot of the people on the more radical side, of the new left used to shout, ho, 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 Chi Minh, the NLF is going to win and wave the NLF flag um, on the streets of New York or D.C., that group itself was even more of a broader united front. The NLF included student groups, uh, Buddhist groups that included like a very, very broad popular front. Um, and it was under the guidance, of course, of the North. 
Um, but it was still like a very, very vast organization. Um, and for Vietnamese, um, the, the Viet Minh and the Ho Chi Minh's group wasn't actually, it wasn't very, it wasn't even like, I don't, I don't even believe it was more than like 10,000 um, by like 1943 uh, or 44. He started off very small with a small group of followers and he just kind of grew from there. Um, and eventually he was able to lead his own nation to national liberation. And finally with victory in 1975 against the South Vietnam puppet state. Um, I think it's a very inspirational example of guerrilla warfare, national liberation, and what like a people really dedicated to, you know, freeing their country from imperialism can accomplish. And, you know, it, it goes in line with the tradition of national liberation struggles. And I mean, funny enough, again, um, the McCarthyites and the Cold War scaremongers, um, they kind of, they, they kind of, what, what, what they feared kind of happened. I mean, Laos became a socialist country and still is. Um, Vietnam, you know, became communist since they won the Civil War. Um, they won the Vietnam War. And then, uh, and then uh, Cambodia had its own struggle within, um, between Khmer Rouge and the true communists of Cambodia. And they were a people's democracy for a good amount of time until the 90s. All right. Thank you, comrade. Um, yeah, I think at the kind of more at the beginning of the presentation, there was, uh, it said something about religious groups having sort of inroads into the South. Um, it, was that a common thing that sort of happened amongst like socialist countries where religious institutions were used, like initially as an inroads? And how does that like dialectically compare to the modern NGO type? system that's like the civil rights the things get in countries and then have sway thank you yes comrade you're right they did use uh, the religious thing catholic uh you know to colonize vietnam and you know it can't uh, remind you of what cortez did in central america right they brought uh, christianity to you know the land right and what Magellan did in the Philippines at the same time. So it's very similar. It just happened a little bit after, though. All right. Hello. Uh, I just, everyone, I've only been to one meeting before. Uh, I want to say uh, I the other uh, comrade, I didn't quite catch his name, who mentioned uh, Ken Burns' Vietnam War. I also would highly endorse uh, watching that, especially the beginning. Uh, it kind of goes back and forth between kind of the history we're talking about now, like the early, early days. And it even goes back even further about the beginning of like French colonialism. And uh, and it, it's a really well put together documentary. And uh, um, if you can find it on disc, great. Uh, I know if you get PBS passports, I mean, you have to donate to PBS, but uh, it's worth it because I, I donate to PBS and I got all the Ken Burns and they're all wonderful, uh, especially that one. That was the, that was the main reason I got it. Um, so anyways, thank you very much. Thank you, comrade. And I'll just add real briefly. Another thing that I recommended on Tuesday was, of course, Oliver Stone's Untold History of the U.S. series that still has more. Uh, context about the Vietnam War, not as in-depth as Ken Burns, um, but also uh, Oliver Stone's movies on Vietnam, 
I believe there was three that was put out in the 1980s and early 90s, a platoon, uh, born on the 4th of July, and I still can't remember the third one, but they're all pretty anti-imperialist uh, movies uh, that are against that war and kind of show, uh, you know, they're not as representative of the Vietnamese side, but they at least give a critical view of what the United States was doing in that war. And uh, Ken Burns and, and and Oliver Stone were both veterans of that war. So that's why they go ahead and report on it like that. Yes, thank you. Uh, much, I, many other times in the past, I've said the same thing. Uh, people say one man can't make a difference. And they can. Uh, had uh, uh, had uh, Roosevelt not died, Henry Wallace stayed on the ticket, it would have been totally different. Uh, when Truman took over, uh, they, but not only did the Marshall Plan build up, uh, you know, uh, Western Europe, including Nazi Germany, they also poured in Italy and France millions of dollars to prevent the Communist parties in those countries taking over. Uh, and uh, the Communist Party was expected to take over France. Had it taken over, uh, of course, that money would have never been used. Uh, uh, had Henry Wallace been by, uh, president and uh, had the Communist Party taken over, then obviously it would have been totally 180 degrees uh, different. And the Communist Party of France and the movement, the government of France uh, would have uh, rec recognized uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and, and hailed it. Great. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, so I, I actually didn't know that uh, Vietnam was a. Uh a people's democracy um, back then. Um, I was curious what other parties were involved with uh, the popular front of that uh, national liberation. Uh, honestly, I don't know the specifics of, uh, you know, all the parties forming the umbrella organization, the Viet Minh. Uh, I do know that it was the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, the, the leader of it, but um, if you know more, yeah, one of the things I saw when I was researching this, and I don't know, it might been might have been because it was a Western source that I was reading from, so I don't know the actual um, uh, uh, legitimacy to this, but it seemed like there wasn't actually many other people in that united front at the time. Um, of course, the Indo-Chinese Communist Party led it, um, and I think that there were at least a few social democrat or just general progressive uh, forces involved, but it was mostly uh, the ICP. And so um, I hope that that answers your question. I know one thing that I'll add is that um, the Trotskyists in Vietnam, Vietnam were actually one of the forces working against the Vietnamese communists at that time. So it shows that even there in that struggle, you had ultra leftists that were willing to turn on the Vietnamese communists as they were trying to make a united front. And it, it's Trotskyist. So no surprise when we see the same thing today. It transcends the lines of nations. Um, so once again, we can go ahead and take some comments before the next section. Um, Another thing that I wanted to point out real quick was the nature of the empire of Japan. Um, this was a puppet state like the ones that 
Germany would set up in Europe, whether it be Vichy France or uh, the fascist countries, Romania, uh, et cetera, at the time. Um, and this was basically the same thing, but the Japanese version in the Pacific. And uh, if you look at the flag of South Vietnam or the colors and, and symbols that are on like the Vietnamese veteran, you know, little banners or, you know, whatever they're called, the patches that they have, um, it's basically resembling the empire of Vietnam. This was the exact same flag almost, except for I think in the Empire of Vietnam's flag, the central line was broke. Uh, there was a there was a space in between it, but it's basically the same one. Um, so you see how the U.S. imperialists will come in and their puppet state in South Vietnam literally reflects the fascist puppet state from before that had a monarch at its head. I missed part of it. Uh, was there a, a lot of fighting and establishing during the August uh, the, the August Revolution? Yeah, so as it was said in the presentation, and I'll go back and look real quick to get the specifics of it. Um, during the August Revolution, they took most of North Vietnam, including Hanoi, and then they went and led an uprising in Hue, which is the capital of Vietnam. Um, but then in the South, when they took Saigon, that's where the field marshal was from the Japanese that gave them the sword as a symbolic gesture. And so uh, around from August 16th to about August 25th, uh, they were fighting and winning battles in different cities around Vietnam. So there was a lot of different battles and uprisings going on. That is your question. Comrade, that uh, August 15th is the day that the Emperor of Japan announced that Japan was surrendering. So all Japanese forces lost the will to fight. All right. Thank you, Comrade. And Comrade Tyler from New York. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we heard the proclamation of independence at... Um, quoted the American Declaration of Independence, but in the the, the first slide of this um, section, I saw a banner that said independence or death, which seemed reminiscent of Patrick Henry's liberty of death. Um, was that a coincidence or was it actually connected? I, I'm just, uh, you know, it seems like uh, we, we can see that they were very much inspired by the American Revolution. Yeah, I think that it was very much a direct reference to the American Revolution and to just Western revolutions in general, whether it be, you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, um, even, you know, different periods in British history that they would uh, go ahead and reference to, because that's basically the powers that they were having to talk to at the time. And you saw that as well in the Proclamation of Independence, where uh, Ho Chi Minh is basically giving the grievances to France in the same way that the American revolutionaries were saying their grievances to King George back then, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so grotesque and wrong when ultra leftists will go ahead and throw off the American Revolution. Like it never inspired people uh, that weren't white or, you know, had European heritage 
um, from doing the same thing. It did inspire people all across the world, and it had a big impact, and that was seen directly with Vietnam. Yeah, so was Ho Chi Minh's uh, movement also inspired by the American Revolution? To answer yes, and by the way, when he was when he came to New York, the United States before uh, or after World War One, everything that he saw there, because he came from where in Vietnam, his homeland, the Vietnamese didn't have any rights to vote. Where he went to the Chinatown in New York, and there were Chinese and Vietnamese, and he saw that they all could vote. So Western liberal bourgeois democracies do allow room for things, and that's why we as a communist party do support the parts of bourgeois liberal democracies that we can live with for now. And Ho Chi Minh, in fact, during World War II, he rescued a lot of U.S. airmen that were downed in Nam that flew over China and he got along with them. He admired them and they admired him. So, and in fact, he really didn't want to go to war with the United States because he admired the United States so much, you know, and he said he wrote to his OSS contacts that if we go to war, you know, we're going to lose 100 men for every five Americans that we lose. But in the end, we're the ones that are going to win. Basically, he was implying in that letter to a personal friend that was a U.S. OSS officer. That was a way of him saying, look, I don't want us to do this. We're friends. But this is for my people. And if I'm pushed to the brink, my people are pushed to the brink. We are patriotic people. It's not going to matter how bloody the, the the battlefield gets, but please, let's not do this. He really didn't want it to become a U.S. war because he admired parts of U.S. democracy so much. But he basically was blending his movement to have touches of the American Revolution combined with Marxism-Leninism. He was in. He was a man very much who was able to be in the middle to have led a successful. Um, liberate national liberation movement, and that's what it takes someone to be able to know where certain parts begin and end and be in the middle to achieve a victory, even though it wasn't the war was not won until long after his death, but to set the principles for it. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, I had always understood that, um, you know, you didn't mention anything about his education, where he got it, what he got. And and I had for some reason had thought that he had gotten a good portion of his education in the United States. Uh, I, you know, there's there's like a little blank here. What was he doing? You know, between twenty and forty, nineteen twenty, nineteen forty, as far as education goes. All right, uh, comrade, did you have a response for that at all? Yes, comrade. Uh, you know, his uh, trip to the United States was a short one, okay, because he was on a merchant ship, so he landed in New York. But it's not like he spent. A ton of time there, you know. Uh, but as far as education, though, he did go to the University of the East or something like this in Moscow uh, after um, after the Fifth Congress in 1924. Okay, yeah. So he did he did get education there, mm -hmm. and in Vietnam, I'm not really sure. Uh, in in France, he must have, you know, when he. He was a founder of the PCF. He must have got something there too, for sure. Great. Thank you, comrade. Um, I see the two hands up. We'll get to those in the last section of questions and comments. Okay, this next section is National Liberation Continued. Uh, independence from France. 
the first Indochina War. In 1946, France recognized Vietnam as a free state within the Indochinese Federation, which the Viet Minh refused to accept. This led to the Haiphong Massacre, which 6,000 Vietnamese were killed by French soldiers. The Battle of Hanoi on December 19, 1946, marked the start of the French-Indochina War. At this time, it was mostly rural insurrectionists. Leftists in France called it the Dirty Wars. In February 1947, the French army defeated the Vietnamese offensive. They attempted to claim Indochina as a federation of associated states. In 1949, an agreement was signed between the French president and the former emperor, Bao Dai, who was put back into power as a ruler of the state of Vietnam. In 1950, the Viet Minh proclaimed itself as the, quote, the sole government representing the legitimate aspiration of the Vietnamese people, end quote. Part of the Cold War. By 1950, the war involved conventional modern, modern weapons on both sides, with the French receiving aid from the U.S. and Vietnam receiving aid from the Soviet Union and China. This was happening in the context of the early Cold War, and it was becoming more apparent that this war would become a proxy conflict between Western imperialism and the anti-imperialist socialist-led bloc. An estimated 400,000 to 840,000 soldiers died there in the war, as well as 125,000 to 400,000 civilians, many of which were assassinated. The French carried out thousands of war rapes against the colonized Vietnamese people. On November 29, 1947, the Mai Trade Massacre was carried out against over 300 Vietnamese civilians, including over 100 women and children. It was one of the worst massacres committed during the war. All right, and we'll watch this uh, part of this documentary that includes a bit on DNB and Fu. And when I start the video, I'm going to go ahead and uh, speed it up just for time. So if it goes a little fast, that's why. Um, but we'll go ahead and watch this. The French plan was to create at Dien Bien Phu, deep in hostile territory, a fortified base which would threaten the enemy's supply lines to Laos. Just as important, the fort might act as bait, luring the Viet Minh to attack with their best troops. The base could be supplied from Laos overland, and it could also be reinforced by air. The result they hoped for would be a set-piece battle that would allow superior French firepower to inflict a decisive defeat on the Viet Minh. In late November 1953, the Viet Minh's 316th Division advanced towards Laos, just as the French had expected. On November 20th, 800 elite French paratroopers, including a battalion of the Foreign Legion, were dropped near Dien Bien Phu. The reaction of the Viet Minh was to march elements of five more divisions towards the French camp. The French paratroopers at Dien Bien Phu quickly set about building fortifications and an airstrip. 
The idea was to mount offensive sweeps into the surrounding area, but soon the French were forced to think again. As the Viet Minh massed around the base, it became suicidal to venture far outside. Within two months, as the noose around Dien Bien Phu was drawn ever tighter, even a fighting withdrawal was no longer an option for the French. Even though his forces were now surrounded, the French commander, Colonel Christian de Costry, was completely confident. He was certain that aircraft could supply all the base's needs. Only enemy artillery posed any real danger. Some Viet Minh guns had begun to fire on the base, but the French were sure that only a handful could have been deployed in such difficult, hilly terrain. As for Viet Minh supplies and reinforcements, French air power would make sure they never reached Dien Bien Phu. Even though up to a hundred French planes attacked Viet Minh supply routes every day, their efforts were having little effect. Too often, aircraft were grounded by the weather, and in any case, the Viet Minh were masters of camouflage and deployed huge numbers of anti-aircraft guns. In a massive effort over several months, General Voi Nien Jap, the Viet Minh commander, used 50,000 support troops to deploy more than 200 artillery pieces and anti-aircraft guns and a vast supply of ammunition around Dien Bien Phu. It was one of the most extraordinary feats of logistics in military history. To the 10,000 French now inside the base, the realization that they were surrounded by field guns and mortars and four deadly Soviet Katusha rocket systems came as a dreadful shock. The French base at Dien Bien Phu had been sighted on a flat valley floor. The airstrip and headquarters were the focus for the main battle position. A complex of five strongholds, codenamed Francoise, Huguette, Claudine, Eliane, Dominique. To break up attacks, strongpoints Anne-Marie, Gabrielle, Beatrice, and Isabel had been created on a series of low hills. The base was manned by nine infantry battalions and two crack parachute battalions. For support, there were artillery and mortars, light tanks, and fighter bombers. By early March 1954, 49,000 Viet Minh had deployed around Dien Bien Phu. Three infantry divisions and two independent regiments were supported by the field guns of the 351st Heavy Division on the hills to the east and by heavy mortars on all sides. Anti-aircraft guns were secretly placed to cover the air routes in and out of the valley. As the weeks went on, Viet Minh artillery fire caused more and more casualties amongst the French at Dien Bien Phu. The fortifications had never been meant to withstand heavy artillery, and the French were horrified to find that neither counter-battery fire nor airstrikes were able to silence the enemy guns. They were too well dug in to hillside caves and bunkers and too well camouflaged. Any day now, the French knew, they would face an all-out enemy attack. It came on March 13, 1954. The Viet Minh assault began with a massive artillery bombardment. French gun positions in the central area were hammered. In three days after repeated human wave assaults and hopeless French counterattacks, the Viet Minh took the northern strongpoints of Beatrice, Gabrielle, and Anne-Marie.
The loss of their northern outposts cost the French 1,500 men. The Viet Minh had suffered much worse, nearly 7,000 killed and wounded, but they had proved that the French defenses could be overcome. They had also closed down the base's main airfield for good. The French would now have to depend on parachute drops for supply and reinforcement. After a two-week lull, the Viet Minh renewed their offensive. The battle raged for a fortnight, with the French contesting every foot of ground. In the end, shocking Viet Minh casualties forced General Jap to pause. Meanwhile, the French situation was getting desperate. Ammunition and food were short, and 3,000 wounded were trapped inside the base in appalling conditions. With disaster looming on the battlefield, the French appealed to the United States for help. There was a plan to use American bombers and even to drop four nuclear weapons, which was codenamed Operation Vulture. But Eisenhower ruled out any American military intervention unless other allies took part. None agreed to help. The French at Dien Bien Phu were to be left to their fate. Although the outpost Isabelle was still in French hands, it was by now cut off from the central stronghold at Dien Bien Phu. Besieged by the Viet Minh 304th Division, Isabelle was under heavy artillery fire. Incredibly, although attacked time and time again, the post would hold out until the very end of the battle. In the central sector, Strongpoint Francoise had been abandoned and the Viet Minh had captured Dominique along with part of Elian and Huguet. However, there were two new strong points, Sparrowhawk and Juno. Meanwhile, the Viet Minh had adopted new tactics in an attempt to reduce their terrible casualties. Secretly, they had dug more than 50 miles of trenches, creeping right up to the French perimeter. The final Viet Minh assault came on the night of May 1st, 1954. After a massive barrage, the Viet Minh infantry hit the remaining bunkers of Huguet and Elian. In spite of fierce French resistance, positions fell one by one until, on the evening of the sixth day, a huge mine demolished part of Elian and its last bunkers were overrun. At 5.30 p.m. on May 7, 1954, Vietnamese forces occupied the French command post and the French commander ordered his troops to cease fire. It was 55 days to the minute since the battle had begun. At Tien Bien Phu, 3,000 French troops had been killed and 8,000 wounded. The Viet Minh had suffered much worse, with more than 8,000 dead and 12,000 wounded. But for them, the outcome had still been a triumph. All right, uh, and then... The independence from France. Victory at Dien Bien Phu. The Battle of Dien Bien Phu took place between March 15th and May 7th, 1954. The French army planned an operation to cut off the Viet Minh supply lines to Laos and draw, out, and draw them out for a major battle. This was done under the assumption that they didn't have any anti-aircraft artillery. The Viet Minh surrounded the French and utilized anti-aircraft artillery to prevent the French from receiving 
more supplies. The battle was an important turning point, giving credibility to the Viet Minh as an effective military force. It was also a decisive battle as the war ended soon after in 1954 with the signing of the Geneva Accords. France agreed to remove their troops under the stipulation that Vietnam was divided at the 17th parallel, which the US and South Vietnam rejected. Ho Chi Minh led the North while South Vietnam remained under the puppet government of Emperor Bao Dai. This would lead to the US-led intervention in Vietnam lasting almost 20 years from 55 to 75. It really began right after 61, I believe. And really quickly, what I just want to say, a couple things on uh, this battle at Dien Bien Phu and about Vietnam uh, in general, especially the Vietnam War that followed. Um, there's this there's this tendency among a lot of leftists when they reference Vietnam to say that, oh, a bunch of um, poor you know, rice farmers with guns defeated American imperialism. And that's not true. This was a highly trained uh, and disciplined fighting force of military, a modern military that was built by the Vietnamese communists that was effective in what it did. It was not some ragtag an anarchist collective that went ahead and just attacked from whatever forces they felt like. Uh, it was a full-on uh, communist fighting force, uh, just like a Red Army. Um, and I think that that's important because when you look at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, you look at their uh, long struggle against American imperialism, uh, them holding out against the Chinese intervention, what they did in uh, Cambodia, so on and so forth. Uh, again and again, their fighting uh, force was shown. And uh, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that they've lost uh, war since then. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say when it came to when it comes to the U.S. intervention in Vietnam is we have to remember that it lasted for nearly 20 years, the same amount of time that the Afghanistan war uh, took place. And so the United States uh, keeps doing this. And funny enough, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan uh, was caused by the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan before by propping up the Mujahideen in 1979. And one of the quotes that was used then was that we wanted to give the Soviet Union their own Vietnam. And I think they were in Vietnam for maybe eight or nine years. We spent just as much time in Afghanistan as we did in Vietnam. So what did we do? We gave ourselves our own Vietnam. And I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, so my comment comes in two parts. Number one, I enjoy the class and I liked how the map showed Cambodia and Laos. So there was a secret secret war, it's called the secret war in Laos, which was actually on the same exact scale as the Vietnam War. There was this other war going on there, this massive war. Many people might know, like there's Hmong people here, there's definitely where I live. Uh, they were at the time, you know, child soldiers basically fighting for the CIA. Uh, but in any case, my second part to the comment is uh, in seeing the the Vietnamese victory in Dien Bien Phu and talking about the French, there's actually a number of movies made in the 20th century, which are very good, and they're made in the West. 
and they could be I would consider them as anti-imperialist movies and I wanted to say them here maybe at the school website in the future we'll have a list of movies um, one regarding France is called the Battle of Algiers which is about Algerians fighting France the same exact thing as we're talking about here just in, in Africa uh, another movie is called Innocent Voices which is about the Civil War or you could say revolution in El Salvador which is a really good movie and then there's actually another movie which is a fictional movie but it's a fictional movie about an island called Teimada basically like kind of like a Granada if you know about Granada uh, although it takes place in the 19th century it actually stars Marlon Brando it's called Teimada and he's this um agent provocateur he starts a revolution against the Portuguese and then they end up killing their own revolutionaries and making it a British uh, colony. It's a really good movie. Uh, and the reason I bring these movies up is, as we mentioned during today's class, throughout the whole 20th century, all the way up until the end of the Soviet Union, the very end, even the, in the 80s, we mentioned Granada, all around the world, one country at a time, they were going into socialism. Every year there was a new socialist country. And this is going to continue. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, really, really great class. Uh, I, uh, you know, didn't know a lot about the October Revolution, like the first one, and yeah, this is an amazing, uh, yeah, class on it. Really appreciate everyone. I wanted to um, kind of piggyback off of that, uh, give some recommendations, um, other resources about the Vietnamese Revolution. Um, one book that was recommended to me was, uh, it's called, the Vietnamese Revolution, Fundamental Problems and Essential Tasks by Le Duan, who uh, I believe was like a, a vice president under um, Ho Chi Minh, uh, but then later became the general secretary. And he goes over like the kind of revolutionary strategy, economic strategy, and then party building. A really like succinct thing and just like talking about all of the theory and all of the principles and all of the practical tasks that they did in all of those different uh, fields. And yeah, it's really, really like clear, practical stuff, really great uh, for, you know, parties uh, and everything. Um, but yeah, the Vietnamese Revolution by Lei Duan, you can even find it on library archive, like the uh, internet archive website. You can borrow it and even hear it on audio. Um, and then the other one was the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnamese, uh, well, they call it the Vietnam War. That was with America fighting it. But yeah, it's a long, it's a long series, but it goes really in depth and even expresses a lot of like, I don't know, you know, uh, shows a lot of US soldiers and their regret for like, you know, fighting, they were like, you know, remorse uh, for fighting such a, you know, bloody war um, against freedom fighters. So. Uh, yeah, definitely some good education, uh, but yeah, I really appreciate this class. Thank you all. Thank you for that and for those recommendations, comrade. And I'll also recommend to the comrades a couple of Oliver Stone things. So, of course, uh, and Oliver Stone is a fellow traveler. I think most comrades here know of that. Oliver Stone did the famous movies Platoon, uh, Born on the Fourth of July, and I believe there's another one uh, that I can't remember right off that I think was done on the early 90s. Uh, but they're all films about American veterans from the Vietnam War, usually having to come to terms with the just the brutal 
uh, violence that they saw, the terroristic, fascistic things that we did in Vietnam. And I mean, American and French troops uh, did behave like the Nazis and Japanese fascists have before in a lot of ways in Vietnam. Things like the Malai massacre, burning down hamlets, uh, the indiscriminate bombings of cities like Rolling Thunder. And you see that they uh, threatened to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam even in the 50s. But they did later in the 60s and 70s too, multiple times. And there's a lot of trauma that Vietnamese people still see from that today. Uh, and the other thing I want to recommend too is uh, the Untold History of the U.S. series because it has multiple episodes on different presidencies. And remember, our intervention in Vietnam spanned like six or seven presidencies, which is crazy to think about, uh, kind of similar to how Afghanistan was. How did the Vietnamese get their weapons? Did they manufacture it themselves or did someone give or sell them to them? Thank you. I think I can answer that kind of answer with what one of the other comrades said earlier. So the uh, People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union were both providing uh, weapons and other you know, munitions and, and uh, armor to the Vietnamese. I don't know the extent to which they were able to make their own weaponry. I imagine early on it was pretty hard, but later on they might have been able to, maybe if somebody has an answer for that. Yeah, um, for example, here's one instance, the way that they did it. And it was, um, we talk, when we, we're talking about um, eventually, like we talk about cell by cell building. Well, in the lead up to Tet, to the Tet Offensive by the Southern Viet Minh guerrillas, as they were properly known, the name Viet Cong comes from the South Vietnamese president, anti-communist presidents nicknaming them Viet Cong is a derogatory name for the southern Viet Minh guerrillas so I prefer to call them the Southern Viet Minh guerrillas but anyway village by village that were aligned with the Viet Minh southern guerrillas they were um vote General Vo Nguyen Jap devised the idea because eventually they had enough where village by village had their own way of developing small arms so that each village had its own little hidden small arms industry they were developing their own small arms but it was scattered village by village um, if you want to, to answer your question. And then also, I'm going to recommend all comrades read this book. Read this book. If you want to get into the strategy and how it he used through the war, please read it. So I'm going to recommend that book if you want to understand the military aspects and how this guy really was a genius. All right. And Thank you, comrade. That. All right. And I hope that answered your question, comrade. Uh, Comrade Ed from New York, you have the floor. Uh, yeah, I want to further answer your question. In the beginning, they may have had rudimentary weapons, but uh, had the war dragged on, particularly against the Americans, the Soviet Union poured more sophisticated weapons in, especially SAM missiles, anti-aircraft uh, uh, anti missiles, which shot down many of the bombers and uh, F-16 fighters. And uh, that they devastated uh, our attempt to uh, use the Air Force. And of course, uh, the, the AK-47 uh, field uh, rifle uh, actually was a multi, uh, it wasn't a machine gun, it was actually a multi-firing weapon, uh, was much more superior to the M-16, which constantly, they did everything with the M-16 did, except it's in jam. And many uh, in, in battle, uh, there were many Marines 
that actually threw down their M16s when they saw a Kalashnikov uh, AK-47. Uh, and it, some people say that was the weapon that won the war. Thank you, comrade. And it just goes to show the efficiency of socialist built weapons. Uh, they're built to last through all conditions. They're not just meant to put out a lot of firepower and then jam and not be usable. Then you just have a metal stick that looks nice. What I wanted to add real quick was just a kind of a personal anecdote related to, you know, the subject of Vietnam. My family's military history is one that I'm mostly proud of. And in most situations, um, I find myself supporting the side that they were on. I had um, you know, people way back in my ancestry that fought against the English from Scotland. I had a Union soldier that fought against the Confederacy and was killed on his way home. Um, I have grandpas and great uncles that fought in World War II in Europe and in the Pacific. Um, but the one part of my family's military history that I find myself not being proud of is my grandfather fighting in Vietnam. And he left right before Malai, which was completely disgusting to him. Um, he had never really participated in anything like that, um, but still doesn't want to talk a whole lot about the war and doesn't like the war itself. Um, the only unfortunate part is that he still kind of subscribes to the Cold War anti-communism that he was brought up with, that, you know, what he did to the to the people uh, was gross and, and should never have been done and was a war crime. But what they were doing to stop communism was a necessary fight. And so I just wanted to say that, you know, it's one of those interesting situations where I actually find myself supporting the other side, like intensely supporting the other side in a conflict that my mil uh, that my family was involved in. And I'm and just as a Marxist Leninist, I am super proud of the Vietnamese revolutionaries for what they were able to accomplish. And, you know, I, I think even today, you know, whatever with whatever problems they might have or with whatever market past they've took even some you know capitulating to imperialists a, a couple times i think that there's still a socialist state that we would go ahead and support especially against american imperialism uh, if we were ever to encroach on them again um yeah i guess just to answer <clears throat> give a little bit more of an answer to ryan's question about uh where the um vietnamese had most of their weaponry from um so a lot of the war material was provided by the Soviet Union. Um, and it was not just uh, the weaponry, uh, a lot of the guerrilla warfare doctrine uh, that they utilized was, in, was instruction developed from China. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, I was gonna add uh, to what comrade from California was saying, the movie, The Battle of Algiers, very interesting. I'm glad he mentioned it because, uh, you know, Jian Bien Phu, uh, was in uh, May 1954. Okay, all the prisoners uh, were kept, you know, in in uh, in camps, and then released to France. Okay, and then what? They went to Algeria, and this guy Marcel Bijar, he was one of the leaders, of the French commanders of Dien Bien Phu prisoner, right? He went to after he was released after four months and then he went to Algiers and you know what he did there and he's like the character that sh that's played in a movie you know Marcel Bijar famous guy in France and what he did say he said we're going to give Algerians their Dien Bien Phu that's what he said in the battle of Algiers 
So it's very related, you know. I think earlier we just mentioned the um, Oliver Stone Vietnam movie trilogy with Platoon being the first one and then Born on the Fourth of July being the second one. And the third one is Heaven and Earth that came out in 1993. And it is it is from the perspective of the Vietnamese uh, side about a woman who uh, was born and raised in Vietnam and then falls in love with a American GI played by, um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, and then moves to America. And I highly recommend it. If people don't remember it as much, but it's just as good as all the other ones. Yes, comrade. Um, last Tuesday, comrade from California, he mentioned something interesting. He mentioned the movie The Battle of, of Algiers. And he recommended that everybody would watch it, which you can do on, on YouTube, I believe. Okay, this is very interesting because, first of all, the actor that played in that movie, he was in Dien Bien Phu. He survived. He's just an actor. But... He plays the role of a real-life guy named Marcel Bijard, who was a commander of the para, paratroops in Dien Bien Phu. He was taken prisoner by the Viet Minh for four months. Then they released him. Guess what he did? He went straight to Algeria. After that, Marcel Bijard, okay? And he said, we're going to give Algeria or the uh, you know, National Liberation Front of Algeria, we're gonna give them their own Dien Bien Phu. Didn't happen though, that's all. All right, thank you, comrade. Just to kind of irreverent aside um, about the names of the fortified positions at Dien Bien Phu, the French officer in charge of making the names for those fortifications, um, the reason why they have the names of uh, French women is because he named them after his mistresses. So that kind of just tells you the pedigree of <laughs> this uh, French guy who was, you know, defending Dien Bien Phu. Um, no, but like as a military historian, this battle is really a kind of textbook example of uh, what not to do. Um, if you're trying to, you know, basically cut off your enemy and win a war, um, the French were under this assumption that they could just drop into a random point in northern Vietnam and they'd magically be able to supply themselves through air power, not through ground, which is the most reliable form of resupply. Um, little did they know that the Viet Minh and the Vietnamese were able to, um, I mean, you have incredible stories. There, there's incredible stories if you, um, I recommend people read Ospreys. They're very short, like textbooks that go over. In Dien Bien Phu, you had peasants like carrying like artillery pieces little by little on their backs and into the mountains so they could dig in and dig their artillery pieces into the mountains that they would then use to support the infantry when they would go forward. And what's even more impressive about this victory is that this is before the Vietnamese started producing, you know, Eastern Bloc equipment. This is before the Vietnamese had, you know, AK-47s, RPGs, uh, armor, and like really like the Soviet Eastern Bloc equipment that helped them win the Vietnam War. So this is this is like with they fought this battle with World War II surplus and they won. Thank you, comrade. You know, the, uh, this battle in a way reminds me 
some of the stuff that uh, the uh, Ukrainian command is trying to pull. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking uh, uh, the uh, failed dream of uh, 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 Snake Island. All right. So with that, all that being said, the time is now 1025 Eastern. So we're going to go ahead and do the wrap ups. Uh, thank you for all your comments tonight, comrades. And uh, thank you, comrade, for doing a lot of the work for the class and the other people in that committee. Comrade, would you like to say anything before we hang up? Uh, actually, no, I think this was great. As usual, appreciate all the attendance. And thank you for all of the book selections that people have recommended. I, This is what we need. We need to know our history so we don't repeat it <laughs> or take advantage of what we have learned that works. Thanks. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.